So we're going to go ahead and get started with a brand new sermon series today entitled Army of One. You're not in the fight alone. Army of One. For those of you who have been with us since January or February, we've been working our way through the book of Ephesians, and today we arrive in Ephesians chapter 4. Over the next four weeks, we're going to be discussing the concepts that are all laid out in the book of Ephesians chapter number 4, and really we're going to look at this from the perspective of the theme of army. Why? Why? Because that's the terminology that is used not only in this chapter, but in other passages written by the Apostle Paul to the church to understand the essential nature of unity and a mindset that says, I am not alone in this fight. Today, we begin with a sermon entitled, Jesus, Our Captain. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 10 is going to be the text. I'm going to go ahead and read that, then we'll pray. And as I read it, I want you to follow along. I hope you have your scripture with you today. If you do not have a copy of scripture, that's okay. That's okay. Most of our scripture will be on the screen. But if you'd like a hard copy of the Bible, stop by the Connect desk on the way out. And I'm going to make sure I give you a copy myself. We want you to be able to follow along. Man, it's good to see everybody. Here we go, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 and following. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, through all, and in you all. Notice all those ones there. He's trying to make a point, isn't he? Look at verse 7. But to each one of us is grace given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended. What does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. Let's pray. Father, as we look at the great gift that is your son, Jesus Christ, I pray that we would grasp even today more than we've ever understood all that our captain did for us. I pray, Father, for the hearts and minds of the men and women, the young people in this room who may not grasp in this world how connected they are to the greater kingdom. I pray, Father, for the one in this room today who feels all alone, who feels unworthy, who feels as if you don't care. I pray that today it would be very clear from Scripture how untrue those thoughts are. Wake up our minds once again to the truth of our connectivity to you and this larger army. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Sometimes we feel all alone in the battle, don't we? Sometimes we feel as if no one cares. Sometimes we feel like the battle that we face and the struggle we're fighting is one that nobody has ever faced. Others have not struggled with. Yet in reality, the more we get to know others and the more we get to know scripture, the more we realize how, how connected we all are. 
And when we look at the family of God specifically, we realize that God intentionally brings us out of our solitude and places us in the midst of a family called Christianity. Now, with that in mind, I want us to grasp these singular truths. In the chapter four of Ephesians, Jesus is attempting, or Paul is attempting to express these things. You are not alone, therefore, therefore, you need to see Jesus Christ as our captain. That's gonna be verses one through 10. Verses 11 through 17, you're gonna see that we've been given great leaders in this army. Verses 18 all the way to verse 22, you're gonna see that you have been created as a new person. You say, I can't fight in this battle because of who I am. No, no, you are a new person. Are you telling me, Pastor, I'm becoming a new person? No, I'm saying you are immediately a new person. You just have to recognize you are. And in the last sermon, three weeks from now, in the final sermon in this four-week sermon series, I'm gonna share with you the greatest weapon that God has given you to accomplish the, the work you're supposed to in this army. So these four concepts help us understand that we are not alone in the fight. Today, though, we are asked to do two things, very simply, very simply. Today, we are asked by the Apostle Paul to do two things. The first thing he wants us to do, number one, we are commanded to march as one. Why don't you say that with me together, all right? Let's engage the audience here together. Let's say this together. We are commanded to march as one. Let's do it again. Let's do it again. We are commanded to march as one. I, I never served in the military like so many of you of my friends. How many of my friends in this room served in the United States military? Would you raise your hand? Okay. Many of you have. Thank God for your service, and I appreciate all that you've done. My son, that's his career path, heading into the army. I don't know much about it personally other than what others have told me and what I've seen in movies, but they say that one of the first things they teach you in the army is how to, how to get in line and march, how to march. I find it interesting when the Apostle Paul now speaks to the Ephesians, he says, the first thing I wanna talk with you about is how to get in line and walk. Look at what he says in chapter four and verse one. He says, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, therefore, first he begins, based on everything that I already taught you, chapters one through three, based on all the theology we've discussed in the previous three chapters, therefore, I'm about to tell you how to practically live. I, Paul says, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, remember, Paul the apostle is writing this from prison in Rome. I, therefore, the apostle Paul, prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ, beseech you, I'm begging you, my friends, my brothers in Christ, I beseech you to walk. I want you to learn how to march. I want you to see yourself as one who is part of this unit. I want you to walk, I want you to walk out, I want you to walk worthy of the calling which you have been called, worthy of the calling. My father arrived in college at the age of 18, but he did not go to college with the benefit of having been raised by his father. He was fatherless, my father. At the age of 10 years old, my father's father passed away from, from lung cancer. He was an uh, extensive smoker, and uh, it just got the better of him. And so my, my father, at the age of 10 years old, lost his dad. 
And so for the next eight formative years of that young man's life, he did not have a dad to teach him the things that only dads can teach you. But somewhere along the way, he repented of his sin, received Christ as Savior, my father, became a Christian. And then he felt God working in his heart to become a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ and found out about a college in Virginia called Liberty University. So he went all the way out to Liberty University to become a college student, and he was preparing to be a minister of the gospel. And in his mind, he supposed that to be a minister of the gospel meant that you had to walk around like a monk, like, like a very spiritual and humble man, and he would, he would walk around like this around campus, God bless you, and God bless you. He would slouch his shoulders down like this, his back arched, looking down at the oh yes, I'm just a follower of Jesus, you know. One of his professors one day came up to him and said, David, why do you walk that way? He said, what do you mean? He said, son, stick out your chest. Put your shoulders back, put your chin up, look people in the eye, walk around as if you have purpose. Don't you understand that you are a student at Liberty University? Number two, don't you understand that you are a future minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Walk like it. Number three, don't you understand you're a child of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords? Stick out your chest, put your shoulders back, look straight forward and walk with purpose. What was he trying to do? He was trying to father a young man who never had a father to tell him these things. This whole illustration is not to help you have better posture. This whole illustration is to help each and every one of us grasp the same concept. Don't you understand the army in which you walk? Look at me, Christian, listen to me. Do you not grasp the army in which you walk? Now he says, I want you to walk worthy of it. I want you to see yourself as part of this greater kingdom. I want you to see the captain that you have, Jesus Christ, and I want you to walk as if you're part of that. That is, live your daily life in such a way that reflects on the position God has given you. Walk worthy of this calling. Now he gives you very clear instructions because how are we supposed to walk other than how God shows us? Look, 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 look in the scripture. Do you have your scripture? Look in the scripture. Look what it says in verse two. It says, I want you to walk with all lowliness and gentleness. First, he's talking about walking in humility. You say, Pastor, I thought you were supposed to have your shoulders back and your chest out and your chin up. You say, that doesn't look like humility. Oh, friend, then you misunderstand what humility is. Humility is not walking around, oh, I'm a terrible person. Humility is realizing who you are in Christ and realizing the only way you got there is through the grace of God but walk around with humility, lowliness, gentleness, but also patience. It says walk around with long-suffering, bearing with one another. Have you realized you're not the only one that is a Christian? How many of you have realized that? Have you, have you arrived at the point of your life where you realize you're not the only member of our church? Can I get an amen? Do you understand? How many of you have come to the realization, any, anybody here that is 18 years old or below, if you are, raise your hand. Any 18 and below, how many, raise your hand. How, have you come to the realization you're not, most of you are not the only child in your home? Which means there are other children with preferences. You say, I am the only child, God bless you. You are one of the lucky ones, all right. 
When you're not the only child in the home, it means that you have to get along with the other children. When you're not the only soldier in the army, it means you have to get along with the other soldiers. When you're not the only other Christian in the church, it means you have to get along with the other Christians. When you're not the only other church in the city, it means you have to get along with the other churches. Do you see? What he's saying is we need to walk with lowliness, gentleness, long-suffering, putting up, bearing with one another means putting up with each other's junk. Do you know what it's like to put up with each other's junk? You say, yes, pastor, I'm married. <laughs> You're not married for very long till you realize I really like this person. I do, I do. But also, I kind of hate him a little bit because of the junk, right? You put up, you bear with one another. This is what the word of God is saying. This is how we walk in unity. Number three here, he talks about in verses three through four, we walk as one in unity, in unity. Look at verses three and four. It says, we endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. We try our best, the best way we possibly can to fight for unity. Listen to me, listen to me. Listen, hear me now, hear me. Some of us in this room, because we have different personalities, love to fight. Some of us love to run away from fights. Both of us are addressed in this passage. You should fight for unity. I love to fight with other people. I know, that's why nobody likes you. But I like you, I'm, I like you, I'm trying, well, I, I'm saying that, um, I kind of like you. Look, stop fighting with everybody, fight for unity. You fight for unity. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Why? Because there is one body in the church. There is one spirit, that's the Holy Spirit. Just as you were called in one hope in your calling, One of the great damning things that Christians have allowed in their hearts is a spirit of divisiveness, fighting, anger, clamor, evil speaking, vengeance, even toward each other. This happens in the local church level. This happens in the denominational level. This happens in the church citywide level. It ought to be fought against. Do you hear me? Do you hear what I'm saying? And they say, Pastor, well, how do, how do I practically apply that to my life? I guess my question is, are you fighting for unity? Now, some in this room love to fight, and so you're very divisive with each other. You're always fighting with your wife and your kids and online, and you just fight, right? Others are very passive, and, and you just, you know, you... You get along. You're like, Pastor, I'm really glad. I'm really glad you're talking about these angry fighters because they hurt me here. They're always fighting. And I just think we should all get along at all costs, no matter what. All right, well, this part of the verse is for you. Because we're to walk as one in unity, but we're also to walk as one in loyalty. Loyalty to who? Not each other, first most. Loyalty to him. Look at what it says in verses five and six. There is one Lord, there is one faith, 
There is one baptism, meaning this, unity, listen, unity at any cost, pastor? No. For we must be loyal to the one Lord, the one faith, the one baptism. That means practically this. Within the church setting, when somebody begins to move away from the one faith, the one Lord, the one baptism, we fight against that false doctrine. So there are practically churches today who love in America to be divisive and fight over the smallest issues. And there are other churches way over on the other side of this, this, this paradigm, this, this point of view, who will say unity at all costs and they don't even fight for faith. They don't even fight for doctrine. They don't even fight for truth. Do you see? So with all of these things in mind, verses one through six, the apostle Paul is attempting to say to we Christians this. As a Christian, you have a responsibility. It's not, Jordan, do you understand? It's not just my responsibility to fight in unity for the gospel. It's your responsibility as well. And as you have that responsibility and as I carry that responsibility, we must realize that we, it, we, we fight as one singular army marching in complete and utter unity. Now, what if our church doesn't march in unity? What happens? Let's talk about Just Southern Hills, this local branch of God's big business. What happens if Southern Hills is not unified? What, what happens? Somebody shout it out. It's okay to talk. It's 8.30, I know. What happens? We lose, don't we? What did Jesus say? Do you remember whenever the, the, uh, the enemies of Jesus said to Jesus, they said, you cast out demons by the power of demons, you know? And Jesus is like, okay, first of all, that's a logical fallacy. I can't, if, I, if somebody cast out demons by the power of demons, then the house divided against itself cannot stand. Everybody thinks Abraham Lincoln said it. Well, he said it well, but Jesus said it better and first. <laughs> Jesus said a house divided against itself cannot stand. It's true for the United Christian Church, but it's also true for a local assembly like this. And it's true, listen to me, it's true for your family, it's true for your community, it's true for your company, it's true for your team, it's true for your country, it's true for the family of God. If we are not united, we will fall. So my question is this, how are you fighting for unity? So I do a lot of fighting. Fantastic. How do you fight for unity? What are you practically doing on a weekly basis to build unity in your family? Unity in your country. Unity in your local church. Unity in the global family of God. What are you doing? That's what Paul is wanting us to see. First of all, we see that God wants us, or Paul wants us to see these two things in this passage. The first thing he wants us to see is that we are commanded to march as one. Number two, number two, we are reminded to follow our captain. See, 
Am I alone in this fight? No, we're a unified army. We are an army of one. But we have a captain in which God has called us to follow his example. So what's the example that the Apostle Paul tells us we have? Look at verses 7 through 10. And these verses, for you Bible students, you scholars among us, these are some of the most difficult passages to look through. So we're going to go in depth and I'm going to have to give some background. Verses 7 through 10. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Okay. A little preview here. Next week, I'm going to be talking about the gifts that we have in Christ. Next week, this is foreshadowing next week's sermon. Next week, I'm going to talk about a great gift that you've received by Christ. Have you ever, have you ever been given a great gift that somebody really thought through? Have you ever been given a great gift and you open it up and you think to yourself, this is, this is really, thank you. It's like you know me. Have you also ever been given a gift that you realize they stopped at Walgreens on the way over here? And we've been married for 20 years. Yeah, you know what I mean? Like, have you ever, not a good? Christ, the Bible says, gives you a gift. We're gonna talk about what the gift is next week, but verses eight through 10 explain where he got the gift. He didn't get it from Walgreens. Do you know where he got the gift? He got the gift between his death and his resurrection. When Christ died upon the cross, he secured your salvation, redemption, and permanent place in heaven with Jesus Christ. But what's really, really cool is that Christ brings you a spiritual gift. Many of you have learned about spiritual gifts, but you might want to know where did it come from? We're about to tell you where it came from. Where did the gift of Christ come from? Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and he gave gifts to men. Do you know what happens when, do you know what happens when an army invades a region? A lot of people die and they spoil that town or city. You know what it is to spoil something, right? It's to plunder something. Say, what does plunder mean? Picture pirates going into a city and plundering. They take whatever they want after they destroy their enemy. It's war terminology. Do you know what Jesus Christ did? He defeated death he defeated the grave. He obliterated Satan. And when he did, he spoiled his kingdom and he plundered all that he had. And he gathers these gifts together and now he presents them to those who are part of his kingdom. That's you and me. Look, it goes on to explain exactly how this took place. Now this, he ascended, what does it mean, but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all heavens that he might fill all things. This is called, and you're about to learn something that some will not learn until they had reached the advanced stages of seminary in their graduate program. So here we go, are you ready? This is called the doctrine of the heroine of hell. The doctrine of the heroine of hell. Heroine is an ancient medieval word describing the plundering and ravaging that occurs after battle. It establishes 
this doctrine, the complete and utter victory that Jesus Christ had over death, over the grave, and, over the, and the complete dominance that he had over Satan. See, sometimes we get this idea that Jesus and Satan, they're like these perfectly matched fighters. And sometimes Jesus gets one in, and sometimes Satan gets one in, and sometimes Jesus falls, and sometimes Satan falls. That's not how it works. When Jesus decided to go up against Satan, it was like when Muhammad Ali decided to go up to, against Sonny Liston. Do you understand? This is what it looked like. I'll tell you, this, this, do we have that? This is what it looked like, all right. The first time Muhammad Ali fought Sonny Liston, he was completely the underdog. I mean, you wanted to make a bet on Cassius Clay if you could. Seven rounds in, finally, a technical knockout, Sonny Liston could not get out of the corner. That's not when this photograph was taken. Highly publicized and brought around the entirety of the world was the rematch between Sonny Liston and Muhammad Ali. And within the first minute of the first round this photograph was taken, Sonny Liston would never get off that mat until the round was completely over and the match was called. It is Christ who dominates completely the kingdom of hell. Now, how does Christ dominate completely the kingdom of hell? We have to answer a few questions. To truly grasp this passage, you have to answer two questions. The first one is, what is Sheol? The second question we'll answer is, where did Jesus go between his death and his resurrection? So let's talk about both of those to fully understand this passage. Number one, what is Sheol? That's a good question, so let's go ahead and answer it. Sheol is a Hebrew word. The Hebrew word, it means world of the dead or the underworld. Well known in Greek mythology and all mythologies throughout history. The underworld, picture it in your mind the way it may have been described in some piece of literature or some movie that you've seen and you're arriving close at the destination and the idea of what Sheol is. In the Hebrew, it's the word Sheol. In the Greek, it's the word Hades. In the English, it's the word grave or hell or pit. When you think of the word grave, you think of a six foot hole in the ground. That's not the concept here. It's the underworld. Have you, have you realized yet the moment you die, you don't cease to exist? Unless you're a complete secularist, a materialist, meaning you only believe that what exists is physical. If that's what you believe, then, then uh, you'll be sadly mistaken when you die that your soul goes on living. So where does your soul go on living? Where does your soul go on living? Well, according to Scripture, both Old and New Testament, it's a place called Sheol, the grave, Hades, the underworld. This is spoken of all throughout Scripture. You'll grasp this idea when you understand that the Old Testament talks about both the righteous and the wicked going to a place called Sheol after death. Yeah, the Bible tells us that Jacob went to Sheol 
in Genesis chapter 37 and verse number 25. The Bible talks about Jacob and he's saying, I'm going down to the grave. The word there, grave, meaning shield. The literal word meaning shield. He knew that when he died, he would go to the underworld, the world of the dead. But it wasn't just the righteous who went to Sheol, it was also the wicked who went to Sheol. That's found in the book of Psalms and many other passages. And according to Psalms, number, uh, Psalm number 31 of verse 17, it says, do not let me be ashamed, O Lord, for I have called upon you. Let the wicked be ashamed. Let them be silent in the Sheol, in the grave. So what do we know about this place called the underworld? Sheol, the grave, Hades, hell, if, as it were. The Bible says that all, both righteous and wicked, go to the same place, this abode of the dead. The dead don't live among us. The dead live in a different place, the underworld. This is why we often, throughout history and culture, people talk about going down there versus going up there, all right? The underworld. Sheol, by the way, has two compartments. One is called paradise. The other is called hell proper or Hades itself. One is a place of torment, pain, fire, and brimstone. The other is a place of comfort described by Jesus as Abraham's bosom. And the Bible says there's a great chasm between these two in this underworld. It's, it's best understood and described in Jesus' story where he talks about the rich man and Lazarus. Look what it says in the book of Luke, chapter number, go ahead and go to that passage, Luke, chapter number 16, the beggar died and was carried away by the angels into Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and being torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes, uh, saw afar off, and Lazarus was in his bosom. So here he is in the burning place, here Lazarus is in the peaceful place, and there's a great chasm between them, and the Bible says the one looks over to the other and sees him. Here's my question to you. Here's my question to you. Do you know what's going to happen to you when you die? I, 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 maybe I just won't exist. Maybe, good luck. Because according to the ancient scriptures of the Hebrew and the Greek and the New Testament Bible, you have to understand, the Bible says your soul goes on living. So good luck with that idea. You say, I, I, I do believe my soul goes on living. Okay, where will it go on living? The Bible says the rich man was in Hades and Lazarus the beggar was in paradise. You say, oh, all rich people go to Hades and all, all poor people go to uh, paradise? Is that what this is saying? No, it just happens to be that rich people have a very, very, very difficult time not trusting their riches to save their souls. Beggars often have no, no recourse, no hope. They're like, I don't know, trust Jesus? Sure, I've got nothing better. And so regardless of how he came to know Christ or how he became a believer, he found himself in this spot. The story is very interesting, which I won't go into detail, but the Bible says that as he saw Lazarus, this beggar over in Abraham's bosom, paradise, he looks over and he yells, he says, please send him to dip his finger in water and touch my tongue because I am tormented in this flame. And Abraham responds and says, I can't do it. There's a great gulf fixed between you and I so that those of us who would like to come and help you can't and those who would like to come over here and be in comfort cannot. 
The rich man looked back and said, fine, fine, okay, fine. If you can't help me, please send him back to earth so that he can tell my brothers not to come to this place of torment. He has the prophets and the preachers. Let your brothers hear them. Because even if somebody was to raise from the grave, if they don't want to believe, they're never going to believe. Sheol, the grave, the underworld, described all throughout Scripture. So what happens then to Jesus when he died? Let's talk about that. What happened to Jesus when he died? Well, we see according to Luke chapter 23, let's talk about it from the very moment of Jesus's death. Luke chapter 23 and verse 46 says, Jesus cried out with a loud voice and he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he <gasps> breathed his last. Jesus died. Luke chapter 23 verse 46. Right before he died, he looked over and said this to a fellow criminal, or to a criminal. He said, in verse 43, go ahead and go to it. He said, assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Who did he say that to? Who did he say it to? The, the thief on the cross is the answer. Let's try that again. Who did he say that to? The thief on the cross. He said, today you will be with me in paradise. Do you think Jesus was lying, yes or no? Answer is no. Okay, good. I almost got worried. All right. <laughs> Jesus is not lying. That day he would be in paradise. Did he take this person and ascend up to the Father that day? No, very clearly no. That the, in fact, when Jesus sees Mary Magdalene later on the next uh, two days later, or a few days later, uh, Jesus says to Mary Magdalene, I have not ascended yet to my Father. So where did he go? Where is paradise? Well, very clearly, paradise is in the underworld, Abraham's bosom. Jesus dies, number two, public humility. These are step-by-step -step process of Jesus dying and resurrecting. Number two, public humiliation of Satan takes place. I love this part. If you've never heard me preach from Colossians chapter two, or if you've never studied that passage, whoo, you're missing out. Colossians chapter two is so very awesome. It talks about the humiliation of Satan. That is where Muhammad Ali stands over study listing like, come on, look at what it says in Colossians chapter two, verse 14. Having nailed it to the cross, he disarmed principalities and powers, and he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. That means he just embarrassed Satan at his death. Number three, Jesus claims the keys of death and hell. When Jesus Christ defeated Satan, he took from Satan and his kingdom the keys of death and hell, along with, by the way, when you study Revelation chapter four, five, and six, the title deed to planet Earth. Now look at what it says. How did he reclaim the keys of death and hell? By dying and rising from the grave. Revelation chapter one and verse 18. I am him who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen, and I have what does he have? He has the keys to death and hell. How did he lose them? You ever lose your keys? Some of you think I'm being disrespectful to our Lord. I am not. You ever lose your keys? See, how did you lose your keys? Maybe you gave them to your children. And your children lost your keys. I'm not, I'm not projecting here at all, at all. I'm not. I'm not. Okay. God gave the title deed to planet Earth to Adam and Eve. 
He gave all responsibility to the kingdom of the earth, to Adam and Eve, and what did they do? They sinned against the God of heaven, and in doing so, they, command, they, 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 they lost the earth, it was cursed, and they had no power over life and death anymore. Sin came into the world, death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Now God's in a place where he has not the earth, it's being deeded over to Satan. He's the prince in the power of the air, the God of this world, the Bible says. He no longer has uh, the keys to death and hell. How does he get them back? The answer is he dies upon the cross, is buried, and he defeats death, the grave, and Satan. And what happens next? What happens next? Number four, Jesus now, oh, no, no, you gotta see Psalm 16, verse 10, because it's powerful. Psalm 16, verse 10. You will not leave my soul in hell, in, in Sheol. This is a messianic psalm that David wrote that's talking about the way the Messiah would feel through his death. You will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to seek corruption. This is the Psalm that Peter quotes on the day of Pentecost when he says, don't you understand what happened here? Jesus Christ did not die permanently. He rose from, the, from Sheol, from the grave, and now his body was not corrupted permanently. This is what it's stating. Number four, what does Jesus do while he's dead? I love this part. He bombards the city of death. He bombards the underworld. He attacks down there. He goes down there and he fights to free the righteous. Well, this was prophesied, was it not? Sure, multiple times, Psalm 49 and verse 15. But God will redeem my soul from the power of Sheol the grave, for he shall receive me. Psalm 86 and verse 13, again, a Psalm of David. He says, for great is your mercy toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. David knew where he was going. He would die and go to that underworld. Who would rescue him from the underworld? He knew the Messiah would. Well, Peter talks about this, does he not? First Peter chapter number three and verse 18, Christ suffered for our sins, we know this. He died for the sinners to bring you safely home to God, we know this. He suffered physical death, but he was raised to life in the spirit, we know all of this. And then this phrase, so he went and preached to the spirits in prison. Huh? And if you study First Peter, you try to move past that quickly. Unless you understand Sheol, unless you understand what Jesus did between his death and his resurrection. He went down to Sheol and he went to the compartment of the righteous, those in Abraham's bosom, those in paradise, and he explained it to them. Those of you who once believed that Messiah would come, I came. Can you picture that sermon of Jesus? David, You knew that I would come one day. Jacob, you've been waiting a long time. Ruth, I came and your faith is now made whole. I have died for the sins of all mankind, including yours, and if you come with me now, I will free you from this captivity. And what does Christ do? He does exactly what says in our passage, verse eight of chapter four of Ephesians. When he ascended on high, he led captivity 
captive. All those who were captive, he led them free. And he also gave gifts to men. Who, what men? Well, the men that are still living. He also not only brought these freed captives out of the grave, he also brought gifts with him, which we're gonna talk about next week. Now this, now this, he tries to explain as well. He ascended, what does it mean? But that he first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above the heavens that he might fulfill all prophecy. Wow. Pastor, are you telling me that Jesus went to hell for me? See, if you've ever heard that before, you get this idea that Jesus died and he was in hell and he's burning for you. That is not the picture. But is it true that he descended into the grave, Sheol, Hades, as we've described it? Yeah. And for some reason, this is a doctrine, the harrowing of hell, that for some reason is very seldom taught in the church. But I love it because we see step number five. This is when Jesus relocates paradise from the underworld to the world above, or what we call the great cloud of witnesses. He now has a stadium built, and he brings all of those from paradise and he says, you sit here and watch and wait because this temporary heaven is going to one day enter the eternal kingdom of heaven. Whew. This is talked about, by the way, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and Romans chapter 12. But with all that being stated, I'll say this. Would you not agree with me that our captain is certainly a brave leader to follow? Jesus is not the politician who stays safely in his home while sending others to battle. Jesus is the captain who leads the charge into battle. Jesus is not the general who sits upon his horse way back in a hillside while he watches his men die. Jesus is the captain who leads the charge and is the first one to die and then in the midst of battle defeat death itself. Pastor, I just feel so alone. <laughs> alone? Friend, what are you talking about? You are part of a large army that walks in unity. And you follow after a great leader who bravely harrowed hell to save your soul, to bring others to the paradise of the kingdom of God, and to bring you a gift that we've not yet described. Oh, next week is all about the gift. I can't wait, but I have to. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth of it. God, we've learned so much in these, these few moments. I pray, Father, that much of this truth would stay in our minds, that we would understand it, not just for biblical knowledge, but, oh, God, so that we can follow the example of your bravery and that we can fight for unity. This we pray in the name of Jesus Christ.